0: You've got a Bible, take it out, find Jude. We're going to break this into three Wednesday nights. And tonight we're going to look at one, two, three, and four. So the first four verses in the book of Jude. And we'll just start by reading those. And then we'll jump in and think about what these verses mean for us, how they apply to our lives. So this is the Word of God, Jude 1 says Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you beloved although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to uh, do a little thought exercise with me here, and then I'm going to tell you a story. I want you to think about the strangest, oddest member of your family, okay? How many of you are thinking of yourself right now? (laughs) Several of you are willing to admit that. The strangest person in your family. I don't mean just kind of like the kookiest or the, the wackiest. What I'm really wanting you to think about is the person in your family that you avoid. And I don't need to know who it is. I don't need to know if they're a member here or they live in Odessa. Or I just want you to think about, we, we all kind of have someone in your family where you say, you know, we're family, but yeah, there's a but, right? <laughs> it's never good to follow we're family with a but. We're family, but uh, so growing up... I, I have somebody like that in my family, and I'm not going to tell you their name, and I'm not going to tell you too much about them, but I'll tell you a little bit. My dad's family, most of them live in Kansas, and so growing up, we would go fairly regularly. We would drive up from Amarillo uh, to different places in Kansas, and it seems like when I look back and think about it, we went for one of three things. We went for weddings, or we went for funerals, or we went for an occasional family reunion. Usually wedding or funeral is what you drove up there for. And there was one member of our family who I was always as a child kind of excited to see if this person was going to be around. This was, this was a little bit, if I'm honest, thrilling for me because odds were this person would be in prison and not able to attend the wedding or the funeral or the family reunion. And when you're a little kid, that's just kind of exciting. I don't know why it is. You know when you 're a seven year old boy you 're like, "I have a second, third uncle, cousin, granddad something who's a he 's in jail he 's in prison, and that just sort of i don 't know there 's something exciting about that, and so you go and usually this person was not there, not able to be there, but every now and then he would show up and again, as a boy, a little boy you just you kind of i don 't know why you just kind of gravitate towards that person it 's sort of like i 'm hanging out with an outlaw or something." And uh, I can remember, especially with hindsight, um, my parents didn't really want to hang around that person a whole lot, and it was sort of like we wanted to kind of avoid that person. We didn't want to be mean. We didn't want to be hateful. We were family, but, you know, and uh, I have a very vivid memory. My dad and I have talked about this several times. I have a very, very vivid memory sitting in a hotel room, this was a family reunion, Sitting in a hotel room, late at night, a bunch of people in there, but sitting with me, my dad, and this individual who was there for this get-together, and listening to this individual try to convince my dad to go in halfsies with him on a CC's pizza franchise and trying to convince my dad, this is foolproof. We cannot lose money in this deal. This is gold. This is our ticket. And I just had, it's burned into my memory. And uh, this was one of the guys in our family that we tried to avoid. And in a strange way, you may have never thought of this, but the book of Jude is kind of a book of the Bible that a lot of people try to avoid. And there's a number of reasons for that, and I'm going to share those with you. Uh, But it's a book that we end up avoiding quite a bit. Um, Since I've been here, we've looked at it twice. My very first Sunday, when I preached in view of a call, I preached An overview of the book of Jude, and and we talked about it then. And then after that, we went through a series called 66. We looked at every book of the Bible, one book a night, a Wednesday night, and we spent one Wednesday night on the book of Jude. So we've looked at it twice together, and we're going to spend three weeks in it here now. But it is an avoided book, and it's avoided because of its content for a number of reasons, but it's avoided because of its content. And it's avoided because it's short. You just don't think about it a lot. It just sort of gets squeezed in there between a bunch of letters and Revelation. And that's how you find it. You find the book of Revelation and you work your way backwards. And so here's a quote from Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is one of the best, if not the best, living New Testament scholars on earth today. He teaches at Southern Seminary. He was my... Uh, I took a couple of Greek classes with Dr. Schreiner. Very, very, very smart. And this is what he says about Jude, commentary on Jude. Jude is often overlooked because of its brevity, consisting of only 25 verses. The book is also neglected because of its strangeness. So there's some weird stuff in here. He quotes 1 Enoch, and we're not going to get to that tonight, but we're going to get there. He quotes 1 Enoch, and he alludes to a book called The Assumption of Moses, So there's some strange things in Jude. Furthermore, he says the message of Jude is alien to many in today's world. For Jude emphasized that the Lord will certainly judge evil intruders who are attempting to corrupt the church. The message of judgment strikes many in our world as intolerant, unloving, and contrary to the message of love proclaimed everywhere else in the New Testament. Nevertheless, this short letter should not be ignored. Just as a a work of providence or a coincidence, however you want to look at it this Sunday, we're going to look at John 5, 19-29, which also has a lot to say about judgment and God's anger, even Jesus' anger towards sin and towards sinners, but this is certainly a theme of the book of Jude. So tonight we're going to look at these first four verses and just kind of lay open the book for our study over the next few weeks. And there's some important things in these verses I want you to see. And I want to start with this question, who is the author? Obviously Jude wrote it, but the question is, which Jude? If you read verse 1, the author identifies himself as a servant Literally a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. That's how he identifies himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's not very specific. Okay? Any Jude who was a Christian could have said that. So that really doesn't narrow down the Jude pool. And a brother of James. James was one of those names. Uh, that was on every corner, in every classroom. You had five of them every time you called roll in kindergarten. They were all over the place. So again, this doesn't really help us narrow it down. The New Testament refers to six men named Jude, or it can be translated Judas. There's no difference in the Greek name if you end up saying Jude or Judas. And you can understand why we would end up traditionally calling this book Jude instead of Judas be kind of strange to have a book in the Bible uh, called Judas, and so the translation in English in this case comes out Jude, but the Greek name is the same, and so what I want to do is I'm just going to put on the screen the six Judases or the six Judes in the New Testament. I didn't have room to put all these, squeeze all these into your notes, so you can, you can follow along or, or jot these down if you're so inclined. Number one is Judas Iscariot, okay, the guy who was part of the Twelve who betrayed Jesus, No one in church history has ever suggested maybe he wrote the book. No one has said that. So scratch Judas Iscariot off the list. The next one you come to is Judas Thaddeus. We know he's the son of James, and he was also an apostle. So there's two apostles that actually have the name Judas. And again, you can understand why that second Judas would end up saying, you know, I think I'm going to go by Thaddeus. I, I don't... Everywhere he goes, you're Judas. Oh, are you that Judas? No, I'm not that Judas. So he goes by Thaddeus. Um, He's a possibility. Next is Judas the Galilean. You read about this guy in Acts 5. He was a false Messiah. He rallied a bunch of people out into the wilderness and got all those people in trouble, and it didn't turn out very well. No one has ever thought this Judas was the author. There's a guy named Judas of Damascus. You can read about him in Acts 9. Judas of Damascus uh, was a homeowner, and one day the Lord sent a blind man named Saul to his house, and he stayed in this Jude or Judas's house and a guy named Ananias showed up and visited with Saul, and you know the rest of the story there. So that's Acts 9, Judas of Damascus. There's a guy named Judas Barsabbas. He's also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. You remember they're talking, they're debating about what are they going to do with the Gentiles. Gentiles are getting saved, and there's this big kerfuffle of, do they have to be Jewish or can they stay Gentile? And they have a council, they have a meeting. And they write a letter with their decision, and they send it out with two guys. Two guys carry the letter, Silas and Judas Barsabbas. And then lastly, is Judas the brother of Jesus. And you can read about him in Matthew thirteen fifty five and Mark six: three. Longstanding church tradition says that's our guy. okay? All these Jude or Judas characters floating around. Long-standing church tradition says, Uh, this book, this letter was written by Jesus' brother. There's even, you can just take this for what it's worth, this is not in any way, shape, or form biblical. There is uh, an ancient Jewish historian whose name was Eusebius, uh, and Eusebius has all kinds of information about this Judas. It's not biblical stuff, it's just take it or leave it, whatever. But Eusebius says he was married and he had kids, and his grandkids were small-time farmers up north in Galilee. So you can take that, you can leave it. But overwhelming tradition says this is the guy who wrote it. And I just want to point out a couple of things about this Judas. I want you to think about the mindset of the guy writing this book. First of all, Jesus' brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah originally. right? When Jesus started preaching, his brothers thought he had lost his marbles. They thought he was nuts. At times, they tried to go get Jesus and kind of walk it back a little bit like you're kind of embarrassing the family here bub we're just nobody's from nazareth and you're kind of making yourself out to be a big deal uh, at times for example in john 7 his brothers teased him like they sort of mocked him like hey if you're such a big deal why don't you go up to jerusalem and show everybody how important you are and jesus didn't play along with that but I just want you to think originally these guys didn't believing. There was a shift, there was a change after the resurrection, and these men who grew up with Jesus, who knew him very, very well, who all along the way thought he was a little bit kooky, after the resurrection, they believe. It's one of the proofs of the resurrection that it had to have happened, that these brothers who thought Jesus was a little bit kooky, completely turn around and say, no, he is exactly who he says he is they encountered him as he was raised from the dead and it it worked a change in their life Um, i want you to think about the way he introduces himself jude a servant of jesus christ and a brother of james like james jude was content to be known as jesus's slave and i just want you to kind of chew on that for a minute Jesus' brother James, tradition tells us, wrote the book of James. And that book starts off as James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of God and a slave of Jesus. Jude starts the same way, a slave of Jesus Christ. People like to name drop, don't they? Like if they meet someone important, they kind of like to tell other people, I met somebody important. Or if you're related to someone important, you kind of like to say, hey, I'm related to that person. That's my cousin. Um, I remember when, I mean, this is how silly it gets with name dropping. You remember when American Idol came out the very first time? And there was a person on on the show from Odessa. I don't know if you all remember that. I don't remember who it was, but made it on the show. And I remember living in Amarillo with Brooke, telling people, hey, my wife's from Odessa, and there's a guy on American Idol from Odessa. Well, how like that makes me cool or something. We do that. We do that kind of silly stuff. And like this is the ultimate opportunity to name drop. This is way better than my wife is from Odessa and there's a guy on TV who's also from, do they know each other? No, but they're from the same town. This is way better. This is my brother is the Messiah. And instead of sort of name-dropping and claiming that privilege and trying to put himself up on some kind of pedestal because that's really what we're doing when we're name-dropping, right? Somebody's up here and we're trying to pull ourselves up to be a little bit closer to them as we perceive it. Rather than do that, Jude just says, you know what, I'm a slave. I exist to serve him. And the word servant, most English translations end up with the word servant because slave has so many connotations in our culture that are hard for people to swallow, but the word is slave. I am his slave. You think about the humility it took for one brother to say that about another brother. Those of you who have kids or grandkids and you know the the rivalries and the relationships between them, his brother says, "I'm I'm just a slave. Likewise, I just want you to think about How he says, I'm the brother of James. This sort of reminds me of Andrew. Like Andrew and Peter, Jude was just content to be known through James. Parents have to do this at some point, and grandparents have to do it. You stop being known as yourself and you become known as someone's dad. All right, I'm not Landon anymore, I'm Emma's dad. Or my mom's not my mom anymore, she's Emma's grandma, or whatever. You know how that works. And uh, siblings, it's one thing for parents and kids to go through that. You kind of lose your identity, and your identity gets wrapped up in somebody else. But for siblings, that's pretty tough, right? Andrew, the very first time you read about him in the Bible, it says, oh, this is Peter's brother. And I imagine when Andrew read that forever, he's like, really? Really? Can't I have one verse without Peter? Can't I just be Andrew? But what's the first thing he did when he met Jesus? He went and got Peter. He knew Peter was going to take over. He wasn't threatened. He was secure in who he was. And Andrew just seems like the kind of guy that would introduce himself and say, Hey, I'm Andrew. Peter's my brother. You probably heard of him. And it didn't bother him. And that's Jude. I just want you to think about the humility of the guy writing this book. He could say, hey, I'm Jude, Jesus' brother, and instead he says, I'm Jude, I'm a slave of Jesus, I'm not claiming anything special there, and I'm James' brother. Everybody knew James, he was one of the leaders in the early church, he was a big deal, and Jude says, I'll just ride his coattails, I'm, I'm content to do that. So that's who wrote the book. I want you to see who he's writing to. And more than that, I want you to see how did he define who a Christian was? And this is what I think is the the best part of these verses. How did Jude define a Christian? Three simple thoughts. Christians are, number one, called. They're called. And I'm just going to give you all of these, and then we'll go back and look at these verses. First they're called, second they're loved, and third they're kept. Christians are called, Christians are loved, and Christians are kept. And I'll let you fill those in, and then I want you to take your Bible, and let's do a little Bible drill here for a minute. I want you to look at some of these verses. We're not going to look at all of them, but I want you to see some of these. Let's think about what it means that Christians are called. Look at Romans 1. Romans 1, the word call gets used a lot in the New Testament. Sometimes it gets used for God called people to go to a place, okay? So you can think about like Paul on a missionary journey, God called us to go one direction and not to go this direction. Sometimes you can think about calling in terms of a specific ministry, like these men were called to be apostles, there was a, a, an invitation of sorts or a, a charge extended to these men to fill a ministry. But sometimes what we're talking about here is not a call to a place and it's not a call to a ministry. It's a call to salvation. And it's much more. You've got to really get this. The call to salvation is much more than an invitation. Right? This is not like your kid coming home with an invitation to a birthday party and little Johnny sent a piece of paper home with every kid in the class and they're going to altitude to jump and you get the paper and you say, look, we've been invited. We've been called to go to the party. That's not what we're talking about here. This calling that Jude is talking about and that we're about to trace through the, the New Testament is a much stronger word than just invited. Theologians sometimes will, call about, will talk about God's effectual call when he calls you it's effective in bringing you to salvation. I just want you to see these, these verses. Romans 1, 6 and 7. This is Paul's introduction. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome, loved by God, there's that idea of being loved, and called to be saints. That's not a special category of Christians. You understand, that's not like there's Christians and then some of you are called to be saints. That's you have been called by God. He loved you and he has called you to salvation. Flip over to the right, look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom, by God, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When God calls a person, it brings them into fellowship with Jesus. God's call draws you into fellowship with Jesus. Look just later in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, we preach Christ crucified. Our message, Christ crucified, is a stumbling block to Jews and its folly To Gentiles, but to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That might be the most important one we look at talking about this idea that God's call is effectual. The call of God is not just preaching. Right, We stand up, I'm standing up here now, I stand up here on a Sunday, we share the gospel, we say, you need to repent, you need to believe God is calling you to do this. But what Paul's talking about is different, because Paul says, we're preaching, we're talking, and everybody thinks we're crazy. They think our message is foolish and weak. How in the world is anyone getting saved if everyone that listens thinks it's foolishness and weakness? And the answer is verse 24, those who are called... From Jews or Greeks, Christ is the power of God in the wisdom of God. God's call works a change in somebody's life. Look over at 2 Thessalonians. Just flip over to the right a little bit. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And I want you to see in this passage how tightly and how closely calling is connected with our salvation. He says, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. There's that idea of being beloved, same idea, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, to being sanctified and believing. To this, he called you through our gospel. In this verse, you see two types of calling. You see an external call, Paul's preaching the gospel, and you see an internal, effectual call, God is drawing people to salvation. Paul's preaching, God is calling. He called you through our gospel, why? So that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's calling results in you Receiving and obtaining glory with Jesus Christ. Flip over. I want you to see the ones in Peter. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were lost in darkness... God called you out of that and he called you out of that so you could in turn proclaim how great he is. This is the calling that Judah's talking about. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look, When Jude starts off his letter and he's writing to those who are called, he's saying, you were lost, you were blind, you were spiritually dead, you were alienated from God, and he called you out of that. And his call is powerful. God's call on a sinner in that moment is like God speaking out In the beginning, when there's nothing, and saying, Let there be light. The only thing that could happen in that moment is exactly what God said to happen. His word accomplished it, it was effective. This is no different than Jesus standing at Lazarus's tomb, and he says, Roll the stone back. And Jesus doesn't say, Lazarus, would you please, if you're not too busy and you don't mind and you're interested, would you come out? It's not an invitation. He says, Lazarus, walk out. Come out. And of course, it's exactly what Jesus says to do happens. He walks out. This dead man comes back to life and he walks out. Jude says, that's happened to you. What happened to Lazarus on a physical level has happened to you if you're a Christian on a spiritual level. God, through the preaching of the gospel, called you and he brought you out of death and into life. So, How did he define a Christian? First, you're called. Second, you're loved. You're loved. And uh, let's look at Ephesians 2. We'll just look at one here. Ephesians 2. I gave you a number of verses, and these verses all emphasize the fact that God loved us when we were very much unlovable. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power, of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of that could be summarized in saying we were not very lovable at all. We were God's enemies. God had every reason to hate us. His wrath was upon us. Verse 4 But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. His love didn't rest on you or me because we were lovable or desirable. It rested on us because God chose to let it rest on us. That's, that, that's the reason. That's what's behind it. You were dead. You were his enemy. You were a child of wrath, and God loved you. So Christians are called. Christians are loved. And then thirdly, Christians are kept. And this is really good news. I hope you see how good this news is. God keeps his people. He keeps them. Look at Jude, verse 21. Jude verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. We're going to get to that later. Just once you to see. That's a command. Your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to keep yourself in God's love. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days I don't feel up to that task. How am I going to keep myself in God's love? I know my heart. I know my Struggles. I know my temptations. I know my shortcomings. I know my failures and my faults and all of it. And I have to keep myself in God's love. And there's a command there. There's something for us to do. But look at Jude, verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept. That's a, a different expression of the verb. In verse 21, it's a command. You keep yourself here. But in verse 1, Jude is saying, you're kept. It's not up to you. You're kept. And look what he says in verse 24 at the end. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And he gives him praise and glory and honor. Twice in this book, the book ends, he says, God is the one who keeps you. God holds you secure. God hangs on to you. You're not going to be lost. God's not going to suddenly decide he doesn't love you anymore. He's not going to take back the calling to salvation that he placed on your life. God keeps you. You're kept. And then in the middle of it, he says, well, that doesn't mean you just do nothing. Keep yourself in God's love. You have a responsibility here. Keep yourself in God's love. Bookend it with the ideas that God is the one keeping you. We'll sort that out when we get to verse 21 and think about it a little bit more. John defines, or excuse me, Jude defines a Christian as someone who's called, someone who's loved, and someone who is kept. His prayer for them is in verse two: may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And I'll just, we're gonna not talk about this a whole lot. I just want to point out mercy, peace, love. One, two, three. All throughout the book, Jude uses triplets. Three adjectives, three examples, three stories, three words. He always uses three. It's kind of his pattern, and he does that right here. Mercy, peace, and love. May these things be multiplied to you. Now, why did he write the letter? Why did he write the letter? Anytime you're communicating with somebody, you know that motive is important, right? Motive is really, really important. This is one of the dangers in being a culture that likes to send text messages and emails, is when you get a text message or an email from somebody, you have to sort of sort some things out in your mind. Like, what was the expression on their face when they typed this? And emojis can help with that, right? Sometimes I'll help you or someone will help you. I'm going to send you this smiley face. I'm, I'm not mad at you. I'm happy. Or not smiley face. And you get the mood with that. When you get an email from somebody, Sometimes it's very hard to read their tone, right? And there's a lot of miscommunication that can happen if you misread somebody's tone. And with certain people in certain situations, we probably just tend to expect the worst and assume the worst. And with other people, we probably give them too much of the benefit of the doubt. But the motive behind communication really does matter. And Jude helps us because he just tells us straight out from the beginning Here's what I wanted to do, and here's what I ended up doing, and here's why. He, he lays all his cards on the table. And so let's think about this. Originally, Jude wanted to write a letter about their common salvation. Their common salvation. I've thought about this for two weeks. This has been the one part of Jude that I keep thinking about. He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation but I found it necessary to write a different letter. And I've been thinking all week, all last week, what did he want to write in the first place? When he says, I wanted to write about our common salvation, that's a big category, right? Like you could put a lot of different kind of letters into that bucket. You could write a letter about one specific aspect of our salvation. For example, I'll just put some of these aspects of our salvation up. Election, redemption, regeneration, conversion, justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Maybe what Jude thought is, I want to write a letter about one of these things. And I want to explain it. I want to write a letter about reconciliation. How you were God's enemy and through the cross you've been reconciled. Your relationship has been healed and restored and made right. Maybe that's what he had in mind. Maybe he wanted to write a letter about adoption right? You were a child of wrath and God and His grace and His mercy because of what Jesus did for you has actually adopted you into His family. And maybe He wanted to write about one of these aspects of salvation. Maybe He wanted to write a book with uh, maybe a broader theme. And I'll just put examples of that. These are all the letters in the New Testament, right? And they all sort of have an overarching theme. So when you read the book of Philippians, it's a book about joy and rejoicing from beginning to end, how the gospel makes us joyful people. When you read First uh, and 2 Thessalonians, it's all about how is our salvation going to play out in the end when Jesus comes back. That's the focus of those books. And so maybe he had in mind a letter like one of these letters. He said, I want to write a a letter like Galatians. In Galatians, Paul's rebuking these people because they're abandoning the gospel and they're turning away from the salvation that they knew in Jesus. Who knows? Maybe Jude wanted to write a letter uh, that would talk about how Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled in the gospel. That's a major issue that pops up in all these different letters, all the way through the book of Acts. Maybe his original plan was to say, Look, Jew and Gentile, this is how it all works and how you come together. He had an original plan. I I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. And you can speculate about what that letter would have been. Instead, he writes a letter urging his readers to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Literally, he writes a letter and he says, I'm writing this letter to tell you, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight. There's a few things that didn't quite fit on your notes, but I'm going to put them on the screen. Jude knows that the church is going to have to fight to defend the faith. It's not going to be easy, it's going to be a struggle, it's going to be hard. There's going to be casualties along the way. It's going to be a fight. And he knows every generation is going to have to do it. Right? This, there was never a generation where it was just easy to hold to the gospel. I know sometimes we think, oh, no, back then it was easier. Every generation has to fight for it. Your kids, your grandkids are going to have to fight to defend the gospel. And there's a great danger that we face as a church who wants to be serious about this fight. Here's the danger. Your kids, my kids, our grandkids, our grandkids, they're not going to have to defend the gospel from the same attacks that we face today. It's going to be different. And the danger is that we raise up our kids... And rather than really focusing on here is the faith, we focus exclusively on don't, don't do this, don't believe this, this is bad, this is the worst. Right? It's sort of the old illustration of if you're teaching somebody to spot counterfeit money, the best way to do it is to teach them what the real thing looks like. You don't teach them all the counterfeits because that counterfeit's not going to be made tomorrow They're going to make a different one. It's going to be new. It's going to be unique, and you're going to have to be able to spot it. And the only way to do that is to know what the real thing looks like. And Jude knows every generation is going to have to fight for the faith, and he believed in a specific unchanging body of truth known as, as he calls it, the faith. Like in Jude's mind, there is a set doctrinal group of truths. This is the faith, and this is what we've got to hold on to. One of the ways we try to summarize the faith here is we say over and over and over, you hear me say this all the time, God is holy, human beings are sinful, Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for our sins, and his call to us is that we need to repent and believe. There's a whole lot of Bible summed up in that. And we could expand it and we could elaborate on it, but that's sort of one attempt to say this is the faith. And we have to fight for it. We have to realize there are going to be people who want to tear it down, who want to put it in the the dustpan of history, who want to change it or tweak it. And Jude's call is that we fight for it. And let's just get this in our heads as people who live in 2019. Jude's not saying, you need to fight for your faith. He's not saying you need to fight for your truth. You need to fight for what you think is important. He says you need to fight for the faith. really doesn't have anything to do with you. Yes, you need to personalize it and believe in it, but it exists outside of you independently of you, whether or not you believe it or fight for it or don't, it is the faith, and that's what Jude is calling us to fight for. Not, well, I just think this, I just feel this. Well, my truth or my God or my whatever, there's none of that. It's I'm calling you, I'm writing to you, I'm urging you to fight for the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. And he's compelled to write this letter because he knows certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. We have greeters at our church. And we ask our greeters to wear name tags a little Emmanuel logo and it has your name on it. Uh, we ask our deacons and our elders to wear a little blue lanyard so it kind of identifies them if somebody needs help or has a question. False teachers don't walk in with ID on the shirt that says, hey, I'm here. Paul's teacher, I'm here to change the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Where do I sit? Which section is that section? Which Sunday school class is the one for for heretics? Because that's the one I want to go to. They don't walk in that way. Jude says they've crept in. When they show up at your church, they usually walk in smiling. They're ready to serve. They're interested in Bible study. They like to debate. They memorize Bible verses to prove their point and support their views. Jude says this, this threat, it starts outside, but it creeps in. And you've got to be ready for it. Like, Here's another great danger for us as Christians. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. And sometimes Christians in the United States in the 21st century get so crazy, paranoid, scared, terrified about all the stuff out there, we forget. Jude is not saying fight against the world, fight against all those crazy people out there. Jude says, this is is where the battle takes place. Not in this room, but in the church, right? That's where the battle takes place because these teachers, these false teachers are creeping in, and if you're not careful, they'll creep in unnoticed. I want you to just see how he describes them, these people who've crept in. He says they're designated long ago for condemnation. I hope that's encouraging to you to know that God knows who these people are and he's not up there wringing his hands worrying about what's going to happen next. He knows that these people are going to creep in and they've already been designated for condemnation. Jude says they're ungodly That's a word that pops up all the way through this book, especially once we start talking about Enoch. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. He says they pervert grace into sensuality. They take the idea that God is merciful and kind and forgiving and patient and they turn it into a a free pass to sin. And lastly, they deny Jesus. And that could be denying doctrine, denying truth about Jesus. Or that could be holding all the right doctrine and denying him by the way that they live. But they deny Jesus. And because of all of that, for all of those reasons, Jude says, I've written to you so that you would fight, that you would contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So this is a story I've told you before, but it's one of my favorite stories from church history. It's a story about a guy named Athanasius. His nickname was the Black Dwarf. Uh, Speculation is because... Uh, He lived in Egypt. Uh, He was probably dark-skinned. He was probably Kelly McKay height, so he wasn't a real big guy. And they called him the Black Dwarf. And um, he (laughs) he was the Bishop of Alexandria. And I just put these numbers up, 45, 5, 17, and 4. And I'll tell you what those numbers mean here in just a minute. In 325 A.D., there was a council... It was the first ecumenical council, and they had it at a city called Nicaea. And ecumenical is sometimes, a, sounds like a bad word in church stuff today. At the time, it wasn't a bad word. All it meant is everyone was invited, okay? 325, there were no Baptists, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, all of that stuff. There was just churches. And in 325, the emperor, Constantine, said, we've got some problems in the church. We're going to sort them out, so we're going to have a meeting. And he invited eighteen hundred bishops to come to this uh, council in Nicaea. This ecumenical council. Three hundred and eighteen of them attended, which three eighteen out of eighteen hundred may not sound like a lot, but that's pretty good when there's no planes, trains, and automobiles. That's a lot of guys that got together in one room at one time. And the issue on the table was a guy named Arius. Okay, Arius was not a bishop, but he was a teacher. A preacher and Arius was going around saying things like this this is a quote from Arius there was a time when the son of God Jesus was not there was a time when he didn't exist at some point the real God created Jesus and brought him into existence and he has verses to support this, and you know he's got his his views, and it starts to gain momentum, and it starts to catch on, and people start to buy into this stuff that Arius is teaching, and so at this council they had a debate. Arius was not a bishop, so he couldn't debate, but he was there, and he was represented. Uh, his views were represented by a guy named Eusebius. And the bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Alexander, stood up. And Alexander defended the orthodox historic position, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything that was created was created through him. He's not a creature. He's the creator. That's Alexander, bishop of Alexandria. He teaches that view. Uh, Eusebius stands up with Arius in his corner and he says nope there was a time when the sun was not and they have a big theological debate and discussion. Church history says this is when good old Saint Nick, Nicholas of Myra, stood up. He got so mad in the middle of the debate he walked over and slapped Arius across the face which if you're in a church business meeting and people are hitting each other you are in the right place. That's exciting stuff. So Saint Nick popped him in the in the chops and they have this debate, and the meeting goes on. And at the end of the meeting, everyone kind of votes and says, We're with Alexander. Arius is wrong. This is not right. And they write something called the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed spells out the Orthodox historic position of who Jesus is as eternal and uncreated. And you walk away from the council, and you say, Well, great. They fought. They won? All right. That's good. The problem is, Arius and a bunch of his buddies were politically close with the emperor. And the emperor took a hard stand at first, but eventually he kind of felt bad about it and thought maybe we overacted a little bit. And he sort of dialed that back. And they had kicked Arius and his guys out of the church, but they kind of let them back in the church, and they started teaching again, and it began to spread, and it began to grow. And Alexander, the champion who won the debate at Nicaea, died. And one after another, all these bishops across the empire start siding with Arius over Nicaea. There's a new bishop in Alexandria, and his name was Athanasius, the black dwarf. And uh, he takes up the fight for... uh, Who's going to turn it off? Who was it? It was Richard. Richard. He, uh, he takes up the fight, and here's the numbers. Let me explain the numbers for Athanasius, okay? For 45 years, he's the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, which means he's kind of the head pastor of all the churches in that city. He's kind of the poobah of those guys, 45 years. He ends up getting sent into exile five times, and he's sent into exile by successive emperors because he stands for the truth of the gospel. And he's the one guy in town, the one guy in, the, in the North Africa, the one guy in the emperor, empire who has the guts to say, Arius is wrong. Nicaea was right. He spent 17 years of his life as a fugitive in the desert of Egypt. And he lived under four different emperors, each one who sent him into exile. And so the pattern would go like this. He was the bishop, and he was preaching and teaching and leading. The Arians would work with the emperor, sort of like a Daniel-type situation. We just went through Daniel. Remember, they, they get the, the leader against Daniel, and they say, Oh, this guy's the worst. Send him to the lion's den. Well, they come to the emperor one after another and they say, this this guy, Athanasius, he doesn't respect you. He doesn't submit to you. He's just a thorn in everybody's side. Send this guy into exile or kill him. And so the order would come down. The decree would come down. They'd send him into exile. Constantine, Constanti- uh, Constantinus, Julian, Valens, all these emperors just right in a row, they all send him into exile. He runs for his life. He lives in the desert. He survives on next to nothing. The emperor dies. He gets to come back, preaches for a while, and then you hit repeat on the same thing. Over and over and over and over again. The the battle cry that developed around this guy was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. It felt like to him and to many other people at that time, everyone had gone on the side of Arius and there was one guy standing for the truth. It was one man standing against the emperor and the entire world. And it would have been so easy for him just to say, okay, I'll sign the thing. What do you want me to sign? Okay, fine, I'll... I'll play along, play your game, wink, wink, nod, nod. These guys lived way far away. He could have signed the little paper they wanted, recanted whatever they wanted, recanted. They would have left him alone. He could have preached. And every time he said, absolutely not. I'm going to stand for the truth even if I have to stand alone. 45 years as bishop, exiled five times, 17 years in the desert under four different emperors. It's an example of a guy who understood sometimes you'd love to write a letter about our common salvation, but sometimes you just got to fight. And the fight's not with people out there. The fight's here. This is the battleground. And what we're fighting for is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not up to me or you to decide what it is. It's been delivered to us. This is it. We don't, we're not negotiating about it. We're, we're not voting on it. Like, this is it. And Jude says, I need you to understand, people are going to creep in unnoticed from the outside. They're going to be ungodly people. They're going to pervert God's grace into a license to sin. Right? They're going to be people you don't want anything to do with. They're going to deny Jesus. And your job is to fight. To fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints.